Yeah. All right. So let's let's see if it can all come out that's pertinent for this class. Okay. Uh, so let us let us begin with a word of prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ, our Christ, our risen Lord, your resurrection showed us what we will what we will someday be and what we already are now through our baptism into your holy name. Give us courage to bear in our bodies your, your, um, your resurrected life as we live out the fruit of your victory over death through works of charity and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in session eight, Righteous Abraham. Uh, the focus of this session is that God declared, uh, God declared Abraham righteous through faith, which looked forward to the promised salvation in Jesus Christ, and we'll flesh out what all that means and everything like that, okay? Uh, who wants to begin reading for us up to the, the first question there? The prayer of Manasseh, written around three, two, I mean, 300 B.C., describes Abraham as a man who never sinned. Apparently some Jewish people looked upon Abraham as a person who was justified by his perfect life. First century rabbis often pointed Abraham as a shining example of works righteousness and need for circumcision. In Romans 4, Paul completely overturns their arguments. Paul uses the story of Genesis over and against such false Jewish tradition in order to teach that Abraham too was justified by faith. You'll notice a significant shift in the vocabulary and context of Romans at this point. The argument becomes much simpler and easier to follow. Paul illustrates the point he made in 3.21 through 31 by putting forth the example of Abraham, the one declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, so let's, let's uh, read Genesis 12. Let's go back to Genesis, right? Genesis 12. Verses 10 through 20, and then chapter 20, verses 8 through 13. Just read those out loud uh, and, and uh, see what they say about Abraham. So who wants to read Genesis 12, 10 through 20? I'll start with that. Okay. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sum summoned Abram. What have you done to me? he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, 
Here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Alright, so then let's also look at chapter 20, verses 8 through 13. Who would like to read that for us? So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very afraid. When Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that, you're, that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on the account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it became the past when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. All right. So... What evidence from these texts do you see that Abraham was a sinner who needed God's righteousness? What happened in these texts? He lied. He lied. Yeah. He was lying like to everybody. protect himself. Yeah, he, he deceived uh, Pharaoh and Abimelech. Um, yeah, he deceived them. What do you think the reasons for deception were? To protect himself and to gain goods and be treated well. And he didn't trust God. To yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. He did not trust God. Um, he didn't. He didn't trust that everything would go well. He thought he he thought that he would live simply by his own cunning and uh, his own actions. I mean, that if that's not sin, I don't know what is. <laughs> right uh, to say, well, I'm not. I you know. God, whatever you want me to do, uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm going to make sure that everything's okay, right? I'm going to do what needs to be done to ensure that I don't die, right? And that's pretty terrible um, because what, I don't know how to talk about this. I, I don't mean to talk about this in an impious way because it might rub some people the wrong way um, because well, I don't know why. Maybe, well, it, it, it has to be naivete about what actually took place or what could have actually taken place between Sarai and Pharaoh and Abimelech. I mean, what does it mean for Pharaoh to take someone as their wife? Well, they have to consummate that. That's right. Um, and you don't know how long she was in his palace. You don't know how long she was there and what exactly happened, but it's kind of an innuendo. At least some people think that. It's it's kind of uh, insinuating that there was probably some adulterous things going on there and that Abraham possibly did that maybe unknowingly or they, whatever you might want to say. But They gave into those things to make sure nothing happened to them. What's that? And they engaged in that and to make sure, you know, nothing really happened to them. Engaged in, in what? Adultery. The adultery. 
you know, it leaves it open for interpretation. Uh, but I, I think it's well within the realm of possibility that, that, um, that God brought a plague upon Pharaoh and Abimelech because they did such a wicked thing. Some people might say it was just the intent that caused uh, the plagues, that God made sure to stop it before it ever happened. Either way, you could go either way with it. Um, some people might want to be a little more salacious than others, but I mean, e either way, it's not a good situation. Uh, Abraham abandoned his proper duty as a husband uh, in not protecting his wife because he literally just handed her over, right? He handed her over and whatever happened, he couldn't control. So we might be able to say piously that uh, nothing actually was consummated between Sarai, Sarai, Sarah, between Pharaoh and Abimelech, but it leaves it open to the possibility that that could have happened. So I'm not, I'm not saying that to scandalize anybody, but to just kind of highlight how grave it was, it's, it's not just a little, whoopsie, forgot to tell you, she was my wife. Yeah. It was, no, 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 she's my sister. And I don't know, it's just kind of funny. It's like, she is my sister, not, you know, not from my, it's like. See, that's what I have. I was like, oh my gosh, okay. That's a whole so different thing from cousins, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and back then the blood was probably pure and wasn't going to cause such an issue as it would right now. I mean, the further and further we get away from Adam and Eve, the more the more corrupted things get, you could say, too. So, yeah. Now, uh, um, years ago, when I taught uh, wives, um, being mm -hmm. good wives, 1 Peter 3 is where this is referred to. And she, Sarah is praised because... Right. She obeyed her husband. She That's did. Right. She did not object. This, this is what is uh, um, stressed. And then, in teaching it, we see that God protected her because He intervened and protected her from sure. what could have happened. Yeah, and that's a that's totally a possibility that God God intervened and protected her from any sort of actual impropriety taking place. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I'm just saying that some people think that there was actual impropriety that took place and that's why God brought plagues. And, it's open to interpretation. That's all I'm saying. I, I, agree. I don't think it is. I, I think oh, really? I think that he intervened and that he does that to protect his people. Okay. I mean, don't. fair enough. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the way I taught it. Now, yeah, that's fine. I didn't ever get in. We never got into discussing the possibilities of. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what biblical scholars kind of talk about and oh, they discuss and, and debate whether or not to blah, blah 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 whatever. I'm just throwing it out there that it's a grave issue, though. Uh, Sarah, you know, Sarah was obedient to Abraham, and that's a good thing. There was all, but but there was also the the flip side is that uh, she took on a role that she shouldn't have taken on by giving him Hagar to have a child with, yes, right? And now that that's also part of that's it. another part of it. Yeah, interfering right. and trying to run, right? Yeah, things right. her yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. But when she obeyed, God 
protected her. Yeah, and that's true. And that's what we should capitalize on the most here. Not the possibilities of what kind of impropriety took place or what kind of sins or whatever. Focus, focus mainly on the fact that God protected his promise that he made to Abraham, right? And God did what was necessary to ensure the continuation of the messianic line uh, um, f- from Abraham onward. Uh, so, yeah, all things, all, all things to consider for sure. But for, our, for the purpose of our study today, the evidence is that Abraham acted fearfully and dishonestly with Pharaoh and Abimelech. He feared... Yeah, he he, and and he feared in the wrong way. Just like Jesus says, "Do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell." Um, and he didn't have the Ten Commandments to guide him on these things, but still, he should have known better. Right? He should have known better. Um, so, with that, uh, let's move on to the next part. So, uh, we could ask, why pick Abraham? Why not Jacob or Moses or Peter? There are several reasons that Paul chooses Abraham. First, Genesis 15, verse 6, gives Paul the perfect proof passage for justification by faith. He, that is Abram, believed Yahweh, the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In this Old Testament text, uh, and Habakkuk 2.4, Paul finds bedrock for his teaching about justification. Second, the covenant of Circumcision comes after the statement in Genesis 15, verse 6. You see that in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. It is very helpful for Paul's Gentile mission to be able to point to Abraham as a man who was declared righteous by faith before he was circumcised. Third, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel and highly revered by first century Jews. If his righteousness was founded upon faith alone, this would provide compelling evidence for those Jewish Christians who considered themselves to be children of Abraham by the flesh. And fourth, also helpful for the Gentile mission, is the fact that Abraham lived before the Mosaic law was given. Like the Gentiles, Abraham never learned the law given to Moses and had no opportunity to use it for his justification. Okay? So most people you meet today are not Jewish. How do the people you know try to justify themselves, and how is this similar to the arguments of the Jewish people in Paul's day? So let's begin with that first question. How do the people you know try to justify themselves? What do they say? How did you know? What's that? How did you know? Yeah, I didn't know. I'm a good person. How could I have known that was a bad thing to do or whatever? Yeah. Or we're just human. We're just human. God made me this way. Right? Something like that. Uh, what else? What else might somebody say? I'm not so bad. Yeah. At least I don't murder people, right? At least I don't steal things from people. Uh, at least I don't vandalize things. At least I don't fill in the blank. Right? And they can justify themselves. I go to church. I've learned that I've been there and I, as if I did something. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that it's, it's about, uh, it's about what we do and not what is done of, for us. There's a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that. We're supposed to cancel out the bat. 
I go to church, so it's okay if I sin because I go to church on Sunday. Yeah. I, I met a guy one time. Uh, I spent some time in New York City, Lord help me. And um, when I was in college, I took a semester in New York for because I was in theater. And uh, that made me decide I didn't want to stay in theater. Um, not a great place to be. Uh, it was interesting for the first two weeks, and then I was ready to go home. But I had to stay another two and a half months or so. Uh, it was not fun. <laughs> Anyways, I remember going to a bar one time down the street from where I was living, and there was this guy. Um, I couldn't find a Lutheran church in New York City to save my life. And I was, I wound up going to a Roman church one time and, and felt that that was really empty. I was like, I don't like this. Uh, not that I would have partaken of the sacrament or anything, but I was like, there's, there's nothing here. Da, 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 da. Um, so you go to this bar and you meet this guy. I go to this bar and I meet this guy and we get into a conversation and he's a Roman Catholic and he starts saying about how, uh, you know, we get into a conversation about how I'm from Texas, da, 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 da. But he starts all of a sudden saying like, you know, uh, yeah, I'm married, but I have a Brazilian girlfriend. What? How do you justify that? And he was just like, uh, and, and, and I forget exactly how it was, but it's like, he didn't think it was a big deal. No big deal. You know, I go to mass. I'm a good guy. What's wrong with me? You know, kind of stuff. Uh, I just, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, I think he actually said this. It's the way God made me. Just, like, as long as I go and confess it and do my penance. He might have had that in mind. I don't remember him saying that, but I mean, it was like just like, no, he, he just like. brought it out. Like it was no big deal. Like, yeah, I've got a wife, but you know, I also have a, I also have a Brazilian girlfriend on the side. What? Dude, what? Are you kidding me? Man, you got to be joking. Um, anyways, so I, I bring that up as, as, as an example of how lightly people can take these things and, and just how, how gross it can be that people will just say, well, but I'm a good person. What's, what's wrong with that? Um, I will say, uh, you know, that... Um, oh, what did I say this morning that I wanted to share with you all? Uh, there is something that Paul is pushing against with these uh, understanding of Abraham being saved by grace through faith, that he believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And, and we know that Abraham was not without sin. He was a sinner. And yet at the same time, God shows his faithfulness, like, like what we talked about before, about uh, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that, that God is faithful to his promise. He will carry it out. And it's not about what we do. Um, and it's one of those things we should understand as Christians that um, we should fight the temptation to be like some who would say, um, well, like if, if you were to see like the, um, the, the Jewish people of Paul's day would be, would, would be tempted to say, I'm circumcised and I go to temple, I make my sacrifice, I go for Passover, I do all these things. So obviously God smiles upon me, not understanding the grace inherent within God's promise, not understanding that, it, that, that doing those things in and of themselves are not good enough, that faith must be tied to it. If it's without faith, there's nothing there. Um, in fact, it's worse than nothing. It's blasphemy. Uh, and we as Christians should also understand that we're not saved because we pray. We're not saved because we just walk through church doors on Sunday, right? We are saved, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to church or you shouldn't pray. 
I want you to pray even more than you already do, honestly, because I should pray more than I already do. But the thing is, is that we should uh, understand that we do not do these good and righteous things because we're so good. We do these good and righteous things as Christians because of the righteous deed that was done in Christ. And that compels us to do good things with our behavior and our conduct and what we say and do and all these things like that. So that's, that's why I say like when, when evangelism explosion was a big thing, um, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's a big thing anymore, and I think rightfully so, um, there would be you know, a time where you go and talk to people and you say, you go to a stranger and you say, if you were to die tonight and you were standing at the gates of heaven, and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell them? And they coach people to, to wait for the response of something along the lines of, well, I'm a good person. I, good, I do good things. And that gives you an opportunity to show, no, you're really not a good person. You need Jesus Christ. So lest we become like those folks who say, well, I'm a good person. I go to church. I pray. I da, da, da. Let, if someone were to ask us, like, where do you think you'd go? Why would you go to heaven? I'd say, because Jesus died for me. <laughs> because God did the work, and I just simply trust that he has done the work, right? I didn't do anything for it. Christ did it all. And because of that, now I will go and serve my neighbor as he has commanded me, and I do it joyfully. Um, uh, so I, I, bring, I bring that up just to kind of push the point home really early on here. It's not by what we do. It's what God has done for us. And using Abraham as an example for that. Uh, and because someone was just like, Abraham didn't do a lot of good stuff. And I was like, yeah, neither did Jacob or I, I mean, Isaac did the same thing that Abraham did. Isaac did the same thing, you know, about, um, Rebecca. Right. And, and, and then Jacob was a schemer about, about all kinds of stuff with, with Esau. And uh, I mean, goodness gracious, it's, it's one of those, and not to mention Judah and Tamar. My goodness, it's terrible. Right. But it's not, it's not about what they did. It's about how God continued on in spite of their sinfulness. It was merciful. Yeah. All of that. And it's not about sweeping those things under the rug. But it is saying they have been redeemed by God's work. Uh, they have been, uh, you know, it's, it's like all things happen. All, you know, God, God works the good of all things for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. They were called according to his purpose to be a part of that line, to spread the faith and everything like that. And in spite of themselves, God made it happen. Yeah? Okay. If they can make it, we can't <laughs> If God is merciful, let's just focus on this. If God is merciful to them, he will be merciful to yeah. us. All right? Yeah, because we are not perfect either. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Now let's, let's, let's keep moving on here. Um, what did Abraham discover in this matter of righteousness. Uh, what does scripture say? That's what Paul is asking us. Right? We talked about how Paul asks these questions and then he answers them for us. What is the answer? What did Abraham discover in this matter of righteousness and what does scripture say? We're back in Romans now. Romans chapter 4. We don't live by the law to be forgiven. That comes through faith and therefore we try to obey the law. Right. Yeah. So, so we say that again. The law that saves us. We don't live by the law to be forgiven. Yeah. That comes through faith, and therefore, then we try to obey the law. 
Right. We obey the law knowing that it's already been fulfilled, right? Yeah. Knowing that we're still going to see our sin in the law, and so we rely on God's grace all the more. Um, okay. Anybody else have an answer for that, too? That's a good one. Anybody else have something different, though? Something you want to share? Well, I mean, it's, it says it right there in yeah. uh, 3. You know, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, so the scripture says that Abraham was justified by faith yeah. in God's promise. God made a, a promise, and he believed it. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that really means when we get uh, further on here um, in that next question. But any other thoughts on this one? What did Abraham discover in this matter? We see that he, he has um, us read like he did chapter 4, verse 3. And then verse 13 says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to, to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, just like what she said. Right? It's not about the law, but it is about faith. Right? Any other thoughts on that? Nope. All right, well, let's, let's keep rolling on. This, this session is actually very, very straightforward. We can easily keep rolling on here. Um, all right, the importance of Genesis 15, verse 6. Paul looks to the Old Testament as the authority in his teaching for what does Scripture say, right? He says in 4, verse 3. In fact, Romans uses the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book, 54 quotations and 27 references. Jews and Jewish Christians had a very strong respect for the authority of the Old Testament, Gentile Christians very quickly learned to respect the testimony of the Old Testament. For these reasons, Scripture plays the chief role in Paul's argument. As noted above, Genesis 15, verse 6 is a wonderful text for Paul's teaching because it describes a time when Abraham had not been circumcised and had not received the law. Paul probably sees this text as a gift from God to prove a central point in his proclamation. Now, Romans 4, verse 3, provides Paul with two key words. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So believed and reckoned. How would you describe the way that these words work together? What do you think? I put forgiveness was bestowed upon him for his belief in God. Okay. Um, that's true. Anybody else have anything else before I chime in on, on this? I didn't put anything for that question because I didn't really understand what it was asking there. Fair enough. Way. Um, like by reckoned, like what definition of, yeah. I meant to pull out the that. dictionary on this one. I actually did <laughs> and went through the different definitions of reckoned because right. I've heard it used a bunch of different ways. And so I really didn't really know which which way he was maybe meeting it, but I'm leaning towards like it was given to him. That's why I put bestowed. Like made or afforded to him as righteousness. Let me let me cheat a little bit here and because I need to look this up quickly. Look at the um, Greek. Um I got I got I got my Greek right here, but I want to see um Romans 4, 3. Oop, I went too far. Romans 4, 3. Um, 
It's another, I guess another word for reckon would be considered. Yeah, so what you have here are two different words, and I'll, I'll use the Greek because that's, that's God's language, apparently. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. It's not only God's language. He speaks to us in these, these ways to where we can understand it anyways. So when, he, when we say, um, uh, Abraham believed, this is just the root word, uh, pistuo, uh, all right, uh, I'm trying to, I don't, I forget, I forget where the accents are. Um, oh, pistuo, there you go. The accents matter. I was taught this, it was railed into my mind that accents matter, and I will never let it go, all right? So pistuo, uh, it, it basically this, you know, pistuo, it means, when you think, you know, so it, 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 it means uh, to believe, right? To believe. And then the other one is uh, logizomai. So, oops, that's an English that's English. <laughs> uh, She's holding you accountable over here. <laughs> Logizomai, so L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I, right? Logizomai, uh, which means to reckon, to account, to credit, or consider. Right? Legit. Huh? Legitimize. Yeah, right. Oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, maybe if you want to do that, uh, possibly. But um, yeah, so it's like to reckon, my pen is running out of ink here, to reckon, to account, uh, to credit. But what's interesting here, and I will dive into this a little bit with the Greek. So pistuo in the Greek here is epistusen. It's, um, it's an aorist, which means a simple past, uh, but it means that he believed him. But what matters with verbs, so I'm going to try and take it easy with y'all on the grammar here a little bit. I had to do some deep diving on this for myself. When it comes to verbs, actions, you know, a verb describes an action. Actions have to have objects, right? The object for pistuo in the Greek here um, is in the dative. And dative, uh, yeah, okay, let me see if I can get this right. And the dative is the one that, I have to think about how this all works out. Indirect object. What's that? Indirect object. Yeah. Um, so what I what I mean by the dative is that the dative usually um, the dative is usually what is um, receiving an action. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, and I and I and I always my friend in the seminary always helped me figure out this way. I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes, but it's like if you have a person who has a football, the person who's holding the football is in the nominative case. He's the direct. He is the um, the direct object, I guess, or the main point of the sentence, right? The guy's got the football, and the football itself, as it's being thrown, is in the accusative case, and then uh, and then when 
when it's uh, when it's being caught by the other person, they're in the dative case, and then now as as he possesses the football, it's in the genitive case. Yeah. Right. So that's how you can think of nominative, accusative, genitive, dative. Uh, but the thing is, is that uh, all that is to say, all that is to say. I follow. <laughs> yeah, you follow. All that is to say this. And please, Dr. Nordling, if you're listening, don't crucify me. Um, he's my Greek professor. Um, all that is to say is this, that when, uh, when the, the verb pistuo, to believe, takes the date of case, it is saying that Abraham believed the promise of God. And it is the sole basis for uh, the resulting action that follows, that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that it's very interesting that um, elogiste is a passive form. So what I mean by that is that Abraham is completely in the passive sense, right? He believes and then, it, and then he receives. It's not about what he is doing in believing. It wasn't an action-reaction. No, it's, it's, it's one of these things that it goes hand-in-hand hand that... Um, that the verb is passive emphasizing God's actions, not Abraham's. That when it says that it was reckoned to him as righteousness, it's not because he, it's, it's not that in his act of believing, in his will that he chose to believe and all this stuff like that, it is simply saying that he received the benefits simply by trusting what God said to him. Uh, and then, so I, I say all this stuff because grammar matters, right? It, it, we shouldn't look too far into grammar. Like some people get too far with it, um, but grammar plays out very well for us in our understanding of soteriology, the understanding of how salvation plays out. That um, when you look and see how these things are laid out in the Word of God, it shows that Abraham is not doing anything uh, except for just simply trusting what God has already said, that God is the primary actor here. And when he says these things, Abraham believes, and then God does everything, right? And so all, all Abraham is doing is receiving. So the act of believing is directly connected with God's reckoning. And this, emphasized that the, this emphasizes that the relationship of righteousness is based on Faith alone. So, um, uh, so it's 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 not that Abraham believed and reckoned himself righteous. He believed, and then it was reckoned to him that he was righteous. God recognized him and accounted him as righteous simply because he believed the promise, right? And it's the same sort of thing. Those are forensic terms uh, that you know he. I think, does not Dr. Gieschen use that as well? He talks about forensic terminology here also, um, reckoning and, and um, things like that. I think he does a little bit later. But anyways, so yeah, righteousness and reckoning and things like that. We'll get into that in a minute. But that is to say, it's akin to what we talked about before. If you're in a courtroom and you're on trial and you're standing there waiting for the judge to give the verdict, and the judge says, you're acquitted, you're free to go. Right? He's rendered his judgment that you are not guilty and that you're good to go. Um, 
It's not you creating the joy in yourself of being free. It is the word of the judge that says you're forgiven. That makes you relax and that makes you joyful and all these things like that, right? It is, it is something happening outside of yourself coming in that causes you to believe these things. Yeah. Right? No matter how much you sit there in the courtroom and you're like, I'm innocent. I'm going to be innocent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of like with these people who, who are all into like declaring things, you know. I declare that God is going to do this for me this year or whatever. It's just like... We'll see. I mean, yeah, if it's God's will, sure, why not? But don't don't tempt God in that way, I guess. Um, see, so, I didn't yeah. think of you thinking about the word reckoned as judgment. Yeah. Then I've heard. Then I think back, and I'm like, oh, I've heard it used that way. There's going to come a reckoning. A reckoning day. Yeah, judgment day. Oh. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh. So yeah. All right. Um. <laughs> I still like what I said. <laughs> yeah, what she said was just fine. What she said was just fine. I guess I guess I was looking for more of the the really uh, really diving into or, or really just kind of touching on the belief and then the reckoning. Um, I was trying to keep. It well, see, I've never really gone into the Greek before. This is all like you haven't. Or oh my goodness! Get out of here! No way! Forgive man. me, but no way. When I listen to the KFUO radio, man, they always go, always go back to the Greek. Absolutely. This word in the Greek is this, so we have to get the proper context yeah. to get the point across. And that's that's the right. That's a good thing about the Missouri Synod is that they really make sure their pastors learn the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm really rusty on Hebrew, but uh, but I love the Greek and um, but and 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 it, and it helps a lot because it does flesh things out really nicely. It, it actually kind of made me a little sad. I was sitting at a coffee shop and I was looking at the Greek and a pastor at one of these churches, I think it's like Nandanam, he came up and he was like, uh, and he introduced himself. I guess he knew that I was a pastor. Hmm, I wonder how. Um, and, and he was just like, where do you serve? And we talked for a minute. And I said, yeah, I'm just, you know, reading the Greek for the, the sermon this Sunday. And he just goes, well, it's all Greek to me. And I was thinking to myself, do you not know Greek, brother? Oh, man. You want to teach you? I'd love to teach you. I'll make you a Lutheran. Right? <laughs> uh, 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 but anyways, I mean, but seriously, it's, 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 um, I've actually heard of uh, pastors, Missouri Synod pastors providing, like teaching Greek to the clergy in town that don't know it. And, and, and it gives them an opportunity to witness and kind of show them, no, look, it, this is all about this, and this is what baptism is in the Greek. That this is this is how these things play out. You know, make it absolutely deadly clear that some of these English translations for these Greek words are really sloppy. Yeah, and, I guess and like they're the wrong word, but sometimes it's not the right one. <laughs> I mean, that's why Bible interpretation, Bible translations, are more important than people probably realize. Um, that's why I, that's that's why I use a, a New King James to for me and 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 like the I think it's like the NASB is also very good ESV is decent uh, but it it all goes through an interpretive lens and, and and I'm no offense to anybody who still likes the NIV but the NIV gets a little squishy. But when I say it gets a little squishy, it's because they wanted to make it easier to read. But you can still read the NIV and get exactly what you need to out of it. 
it is, but it's 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 matching reading levels. NIV is written at an eighth grade reading level. ESV is written at a twelfth grade. And they're all you know, getting it from the Greek anyway. They're so all getting it from just, the Greek anyway. I mean, I need to read the word Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Except the New King James, which came from the Latin. What's that? New King James came from the Latin Vulgate, didn't it? No, not all of it. Um, they probably used that for interpretive reasons. Uh, whenever I match up the wrong, whenever I match up, uh, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't the Latin Vulgate. We can get into this another time, but it wasn't that the, the new King James follows an interpretive tradition like the King James did that they use certain manuscripts. They might use the Vulgate to kind of clarify a point here and there, but, uh, and I may be wrong about this, so I'm, I'm, I'm not completely on this, but the thing that I know that's different about the New King James and the King James versus the ESV is that they go with what's known as the majority text, the Byzantine text, and uh, the ESV goes with more of a critical, uh, critical, critically compiled rendition of the Greek. Um, uh, that's, that's a little more modern. I guess you could say that varies slightly in certain places about the the thrust of certain texts or this certain meaning and this that and the other but all in all I mean I don't mean this to I don't bring this up to say you know you shouldn't trust your interpret the the specific version of the Bible that you have but to just say there's a lot of things that go into interpreting a Bible there's a lot of things you got to be aware of and um, there are some versions of translations that are problematic in some ways because they, they don't quite hit the mark as hard as they could. Well, but that's me. I'm a stickler. I like, I like being a stickler and, and you pay me to be a stickler. So I'm going to be a stickler a little bit here. And, and I, I will say the new King James, it's not perfect. You know, I would say things uh, that, um, if I'm if I'm going to go for a hyper literal one, I'd use Young's literal translation, but that's really hard to read because it's it like hits everything, every little every little um, article, every little bit of whatever. It's it sounds like Yoda. I'll be honest with you, because that's how the Greek is. It'll say because this in Greek says you know um, uh, it for is written right, <laughs> saying um, believed. Abraham in God and reckoned to him was righteousness. You know? So it's like, it sounds like Yoda. <laughs> so it's not very easy to read. So they have to do certain things to make it a little bit easier, but that's all part of the, the clarity of scripture. You can still understand it. Uh, well, you know, even if you're reading the message, I don't like I the message. Say, the message is terrible. The I, message or the amplified version. I don't think you should be trying. I don't think you text. should be reading the message. I would never advocate anybody read the message. Um, it's not. It's that's just not good. <laughs> it's just not good. Don't read it. Um, just don't read it. I mean, read it for fun. Yeah. If you want a good laugh, I'm sorry, but uh, it, it's it's just kind of fun. it's it's very silly because it tries to be hyper modern and in the colloquial terminology literally people are saying you know like hey how's it going or whatever and it's like what 
don't understand. Anyways, sorry. Big tangent. Sorry about that. Um, But if you're, it never hurts to have several translations available to you. Never hurts. Because you can, you can, you can get a good scope of of what different uh, interpretations can can be. Okay. All right. Anyways, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that tangent. Um, you know, I get off on these things. So let's just keep on going. We the main point is, is that believed and reckoned go hand in hand. All right. Uh, so we should also note the importance of righteousness. Certainly, the presence of this noun is what draws Paul to this text. The righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, was present and given as the gospel already in the Old Testament. The promise given to Abraham was the gospel that spoke of Christ, who is the righteousness of God. The saints of the Old Testament did not receive salvation in a different manner from us. They also believed and individually received the righteousness that resulted from God's universal declaration pronounced for the sake of Christ. Righteousness and salvation have always been received by grace through faith. Uh, Romans 4, verses 4 through 8, makes it very clear that this righteousness is by faith alone, not faith and works. Here Paul points out the difference between wages reckoned as an obligation for work and righteousness reckoned by grace and light of faith. This point is especially driven home by the description of God as the one who declares righteous the ungodly. This phrase describes God as the one who declares righteous all the ungodly in light of Christ's work of atonement, universal justification. The one who believes in this God then receives the benefits of this declaration, individual justification, right? Like we talked about last time and how you have to be really careful how you use those terms, right? Um, how does the word wicked in chapter 4, verse 5, emphasize that salvation is not earned but given by God? Now, that might be a different word depending on your translation, kind of go back to what we talked about before. In the NIV, I think it does say wicked, it says doesn't wicked, it? Yes. In the New King James, it says ungodly. And in fact, the Greek word does mean more of ungodly. Uh, but maybe they were, and so that's the thing, they were using that in an interpretive way to kind of drive a certain point. Um, either way, wicked, ungodly, um, how does that word emphasize that salvation is not earned but given by God? Wicked, ungodly. Well, because if, you, if you're using the thought process like, oh, I'm just a good person, mm-hmm. you have ungodly people doing good works all the time. Yeah. So I put, because wicked people do good works anyway, but God's justified them through Jesus Christ. And it emphasizes to that those who believe that Jesus died for the wicked, which we all are. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you, when you talk about works and them being good... Um, if you're ungodly by yourself and all the works you do are therefore ungodly, how is God going to see ungodly works by themselves? Uh, Requiring punishment. Yeah, he's going to punish you for those things because they're contrary to him. 
and so, yeah, it's one of those things that, like, um, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. We are, if we are ungodly, then certainly we cannot earn God's righteousness. We may be able to have some sort of civil righteousness amongst people. That's why you can look at an atheist who gives a lot of charity or whatever and say, oh, they actually do some good things for people. It's like, yeah, but I mean, they're an atheist, you know? They don't, they don't, they don't get it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's really a matter, and I think I talked about this a little bit on Sunday with the sermon, that um, it's not about the outward works, but the inward motivation for them. If the inward motivation is to persist in your ungodliness because you think that you can do better by yourself, you miss the point. Uh, the good works must be the good fruit that comes from the salvation from Christ alone. Right? It always has to go back to starting with what Christ has done. Uh, what does St. James say? Let your love be genuine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let your love be genuine. Um, and he talks, every time that James talks about anything that we do, it's never separated from faith. It's never separated from the justification brought, al brought along by Christ. Um, the Roman Catholics don't get that, but yeah, it's neither here nor there. They think it's exactly that, that faith and works, right? That's, that's not the point. Um, any other thoughts on this? I put salvation can and is for everyone who repents and ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Yeah. Although, let's let's quickly define what repentance is. Yeah, uh, I mean, truly repentant of yeah. your sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Not just so, saying the words, but truly in your heart, you realize what you've done. Yeah. And you and you ask forgiveness. Yeah, and but like we, we need to define what repentance is because we as Lutherans, we've done this. Uh, we, we've, we've defined what repentance is because you talk to somebody else and they'll just simply say, turn away from your sin and, uh, you know, as if that's something you can do by yourself, right? Repentance, in our understanding according to Scripture, is that repentance has two parts, contrition and faith. That we hear the Word of God, we hear the law, we hear how we fall short, we are contrite in heart, we're sorrowful, because we fall short. And that makes us turn away from our sin because we see it for what it is. And then there's contrition and then faith, faith in the promise, right? Going back to what Jesus has done. It's not just about turning away from sin and that's all you gotta do, just turn away from your sin and everything will be okay. Repentance includes faith. Yeah. Without it, it's nothing, it's dead. Um, it's worthless. Uh, it's less than worthless. It's antagonistic towards God. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on that? <laughs> Sorry, I just have to explain these things because I don't know if a whole lot of people readily think of them the way that we do. You know. So, um, not that I'm trying to correct you or anything, because that was a good that was a good answer. It's a very good answer. Um, all right. So, man, we're. Do y'all just like try to think of questions that will get me off topic? <laughs> I actually had a really good time with this study. Good. Kind of getting into it. Good. So. Good. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious and slightly joking. I love the questions. Wait for next week. Oh. <laughs> oh man, make me work before I go on vacation. Um, yeah. All right. So let's get into the right that that righteous status. Um, 
does not depend on circumcision. Okay? Uh, circumcision was one of the most widely practiced operations in the ancient world, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Only Caucasian, Mongol, Finnish, and Hungarian people were unfamiliar with the practice. Although most cultures practiced circumcision when boys reached 10 to 12 years of age, <laughs> ouch, man. The Hebrews circumcised their sons only eight days after birth. The early age of circumcision among the Hebrews marked them as different from other nations, as you see that in Genesis 17. In other passages, Paul compares circumcision with baptism, Colossians 2, 11-14. Notice that, or note that just as circumcision is always passive, no one circumcises himself, insert joke here, uh, <laughs> seriously, uh, no one circumcises himself, Baptism is always passive, emphasizing that God's blessings come by grace through faith and not through an individual's good deeds. Um, read Genesis 17, 10 through 14. Uh, we'll do that really quick here so we don't so, so we just keep good on time, sort of. <laughs> sort of. Genesis 17, 10 through 14. Who wants to read those for us real quick? I have it right here. Mm -hmm. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner, those who are not those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. So uh, what role did circumcision play in the Old Testament? It separated believers from non-believers. Yeah, it, it, it separated, uh, yeah, those those in the covenant. Supposedly. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, was, it was the outward sign, right? It was, it, was, it was the seal, as we'll talk about in a minute here. Uh, it, was, it was the sign of the covenant showing that this, that this man belonged to God. And notice how uh, anyone in the household, any, any male in the household needed to be circumcised as well. Slave, whatever. Um, servant, whatever. Uh, and that's the same thing with baptism, too, that you see in Acts, that the whole household was baptized, uh, tying it in with the same thing, with the same emphasis as well. Any other thoughts on that? Um, I remember you telling me when I was younger and we were talking about circumcision mm -hmm. and talking about this mm -hmm. and that they had done a scientific study and boys around that time after they're born, like, produce a natural anesthetic. Oh. You ever heard that? I think eight somewhere. Days, at, uh -huh. When they're about eight days old, they have a natural anesthetic that if they get circumcised, it's going to be less painful for them. Oh, interesting. I've heard How it. How do they figure this stuff out? That's so crazy. I had heard it was a level of vitamin K was the highest thing and that gives you more blood clotting ability. And maybe maybe that's why. Yeah, there's all kinds of that, reasons. That yeah. when, the, when the male baby is like eight days old, right around that time, that is the best time to circumcise them. Hmm. 
Hmm. I did not know that. Merciful again. Yeah. <laughs> God is merciful. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, can you imagine 10 or 12 years old? <laughs> Maybe that was a rite of passage. It's like, can you make it through this? And then you're a real man kind of thing. Maybe that's something to it. Um, we should not bring that back, just so you know. I think it's terrible. Uh, as far as waiting till 10 or 12, that's tough. Um, all right. That's when you go through... Uh... Confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think we should add that to the right. Yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting that he does, that God institutes that also when they're eight days old instead of, because of the parallels with baptism, like when people don't believe in baptizing infants because it's something that you have to do. It's something. It's an action you're doing instead yeah. of something right. God's doing. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he did it with here with babies eight years old. Yeah. People coming in was a different story, you know. Yeah. You might have been ten or twelve when you came into the household. When you came into the household, you were going to be circumcised, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and and that's and that's the thing is that I think there was like a Babylon Bee article with a headline saying uh, something like, uh, "The Virgin Mary, or Mary, Mary, the Mother of God." Um, decides that uh, she's going to wait to circumcise Jesus until he's old enough to decide for himself. It's like, yeah, that's not how that happened. You know, it's not, that's, that's not what happened. Yeah, because if you leave it up to that, I mean, how many, yeah, how many guys are going to say, like, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, let's, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. That was just a thought. Yeah, no, it's a good thought. Um, and I think we talked before about like circumcision of the heart and things like that. It's 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 a painful thing too to deny yourself and deny your sinful flesh, but baptism makes it possible. Right? Baptism and faith, right? Um, let's keep pressing on here for the sake of time. Paul's letter to the Galatians illustrates the challenge that circumcision posed in the Jewish Christian churches as they expanded their mission to Gentiles. Some Jewish Christians insisted that all Christians, Jewish and Gentile, be circumcised in obedience to the law. If circumcision posed a problem in Galatia, it probably also challenged many other congregations where there was a Jewish Christian element, including some of the house churches in Rome. Paul carefully points out that Abraham was not circumcised when the biblical text states that God reckoned righteousness to him. Therefore, the blessed one who is righteous is not limited to the person who is circumcised, but includes the uncircumcised. Faith in the promise, not circumcision, is the key to righteous status. Um, is, and, and Paul asks, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What's the answer? For everyone also for the uncircumcised. Yeah. It's for all who believe. Yes. Based on faith, not a physical action. That's right. It's for all who believe. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Right? So it is faith. It's to all who believe. Right? It's not about what we do. Um, okay, so Paul states that Abraham received circumcision as a seal of the righteousness given through faith. Sealing refers to the closing of a letter with the personal insignia of a ruler. 
The seal testifies that the contents of the letter belong to the ruler. The seal sets apart the letter as the ruler's personal property. Paul connects the imagery of sealing with the usage of God's name in baptism, 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, and 4, Revelation 7, right? This analogy with baptism can help us understand the relationship between faith and circumcision. Baptism creates or nurtures faith that receives the righteousness of God. One should never disconnect the sacramental act from faith. This is also true for circumcision. Paul warns against disconnecting faith from circumcision, which he describes as a seal of the righteousness of faith. Okay. Um, some folks quibbled with the wording of that last paragraph, and, you know, rightly so. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like when you say baptism creates or nurtures faith, and someone said, well, it's the word that nurtures faith, and I said, yeah, but it's also the promise of baptism, you know, otherwise it's not right when Paul says in chapter 6, verse 4, that we were buried with him in baptism so that we might rise to newness of life and we take that to mean that every day we drown the old Adam and the old man and, and, and the new man comes forth, right? That every single day the promise of baptism is still for us, right? So it does nurture our faith. I think that's what he means by that. Um, and circumcision was always meant to be a part of faith, but that was in the old covenant and now we have the new, right? All right, Emma. Yeah. What's that? You know, we're talking about all the circumcision, everybody needs to be done, it's for faith. It says, it, it feels like this is directed at men. Mm -hmm. What about women? Women don't get circumcised. No, they don't. Um, but that's okay. Do, it. do what? Uh, Islam, they Well, Muslim. Something I know. that they call. They say that they do it. It's, yeah. it's, it's really just mutilation. It's a mutilation. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but, um,. I'm just, I'm just. But they, they pick up on this in some way too. Well, yeah, when you see it, and I think rightfully so. Of course, circumcision is only directed towards men, but it's not that women are not included in the covenant. Obviously, that's why marriage was so important and should still be very important, because you know the wife comes under the head of her husband as as the head of the household, and if and, and that's why when people were baptized, the whole household was baptized, men and women, boys and girls. Um, but I, I say that to say that it's also very interesting that, um, you know, Paul talks about there is no male or female, no Jew or Greek, you know, all these things like that. Um, that's not to say that gender distinctions go out the window, but that we are all sealed as God's children specifically as God's sons, that even you ladies are sons of God, counted as sons of God. But then again, we men have to be okay with being a part of the bride of Christ. So there's both sides of it, you know? Um, so yeah, these distinctions are not necessarily blurred, but they're united in the way that they should be. Um, where uh, there, there, there is a bliss that comes from knowing that God has redeemed all people and made us to be righteous as we were, uh, as we were meant to be in the garden, right? That man and woman would, were 
were never quite distinct as they are today until the fall. Right? In the fall is when you get the, the curse that uh, women will desire their husbands in their position, but he will rule over them, right? Um, and, and, and the like. And that's part of the order of creation, and Paul talks about that too. So it's not that, you know, that's another thing too. That's a distinct part of the old covenant of circumcision. A distinct part of the new covenant is that all are baptized, men and women. All must be baptized uh, because they're all brought under the headship of Christ, right, uh, in, that, in that way. And it's so. more to do with our souls, not our physical bodies anyway, correct? I mean, there's still a link between the two because you're not just, we don't believe in just a spiritual baptism. We believe in baptism with water mm-hmm. and the word, right? So there's a physical aspect to it, but it's not in the sense of, you know, cutting flesh and, and things like that. So it's a little different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering how you were going to answer all these questions. Yeah, well... <laughs> Good. <laughs> I like them. They keep me on my toes, and, and, and uh, um, I, like, I like to know that y'all are thinking about them as well. It's a good thing. Okay? Um, Just wait till you get back from vacation. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have two weeks. We'll have them all pent up. Yeah, I know, right? All well, pent accumulated. Up. Yeah. All right. Uh, under, under what circumstances was righteousness credited was it after Abraham was circumcised or before? What's the answer? That was before. Oh, before. Was before. Before. Yeah, God credited righteousness to Abraham before mm-hmm. he was circumcised. Um, he accepted that God was his Savior and that he would send another Messiah to earth. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <coughs> and then he had to get circumcised before. Yeah, that was fun, I'm sure. But then all his household was circumcised with him, so they all felt his pain. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, anyways, um, the promise comes before the law. So at the end of chapter 4, Paul emphasizes the promise. The promise should be understood as the Old Testament equivalent to the gospel. Here's why. In Genesis 15, 5, God promises, So shall your descendants be as, as, uh, as, uh, as, um, innumerable as the stars. See Romans 4.18. This promise proclaimed the gospel because it assured Abraham of the birth of the Messiah who would bless all nations. God promised that the Messiah would come through Abraham even though Abraham did not yet have a son. See Genesis 12.3. Paul notes that God's promise to Abraham emphasized what God would do, not what we should do or have to do. Note the parallel structure in chapter 4, verse 13, which emphasizes that the promise came to Abraham through faith and not through the law. Paul emphasizes that if you teach righteousness through the law, you cancel the promise that came before the law and gave righteousness to those who believed. See that? Chapter 4, verse 14. According to grace, emphasized previously in 3, verse 24, becomes prominent again in chapter 4, verse 16. The universal nature of God's promise to Abraham also is clear. He is to be the father of all nations, not only Israel. Uh, How has 
this universal aspect of God's promise to Abraham can tr come true in our times. Where are you up for that one? All nation includes the Gentiles. Yeah. All nations. Um, where do we see this in Scripture? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I had something I was like. Yeah, that. go ahead. Seeing it come true in our times. I mean, it's, I mean, the Word of God's everywhere now. Yeah. I mean, it's in how I mean, many languages and all this stuff like that? Yeah. There's Christians all over the globe now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're all seeds of Adam through that. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So God's promises coming true again. Yeah, it's for all people, to all people. We see in Revelation the, the multitude from every tribe and every tongue bowing and, and reverencing God, you know, for what he has done through Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, people of all races have believed in Jesus that's Abraham's offspring for their salvation. It, it's cut and dry like that. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, sorry, I'm going to get on a little bit of a tangent here just to warn you a little bit about, about something. Um, you know, the, the Missouri Synod is never immune from people teaching false doctrine. You know, that's why we, that's why we emphasize pure doctrine so much, or at least we should. We emphasize pure doctrine so much because we need to be on our guard against people who are teaching false doctrine. There is, and this is bringing up the race issue, so I'll just touch on this real quick. Since 2020 and Black Lives Matter, BLM, all that stuff like that, George Floyd and whatever, there has popped up a group within the Missouri Synod uh, called Lutherans for Racial Justice. Have any of you all heard of this group before? Um, they're very interesting. Uh, everything they say on the surface sounds really nice, and, but when you dive deep into the terminology they use, the vocabulary they use, it's the same sort of stuff that plays into critical race theory. It's the same sort of stuff that is not of God, but of man, uh, and specifically has Marxist roots, because they'll talk about equity, equality, all these things like that but they'll put a gospel gloss over it, okay? Now, I bring that up because they can gain a lot of traction because, what, Missouri Synod is predominantly white, right? And so they're trying to stir up things by bringing about certain injustices that the Missouri Synod turns a blind eye to or something like that. Um, Where did this start? Where did it start? Um, I don't, I don't know where it started. I do know there's a pastor in the Bronx in New York who's part of it. There's a layman out in California who's a part of it. Um, I mean, you can look, look into it for yourself and just kind of tell me what you think. What's it called again? <laughs> Lutherans for Racial Justice. And I hesitate to even bring them up because I don't even want to give them any credence on some level, right? It's one of those things that people don't know about a bad thing, why would you tell them about it so they can go and maybe be persuaded by it, right? I bring it up so that you would be warned about these folks because what they are doing inadvertently, they may not say they're doing this, but the end result is that they are stirring up division. They're stirring up division and strife where there ought not be. And they say that they're doing it for the sake of the gospel. 
beware of these people and anybody who proponent who are proponents of these folks, and especially be mindful that there were a big contingent of people that support this movement behind the small group gatherings and a lot of things that happened at the National Youth Gathering that just happened. Oh. I can give you some things about the about uh, certain breakout sessions that happened at the National Youth Gathering, and they use terminology like cisgender, how to, how, to, how to talk to your transgender friends without freaking them out about the gospel, this, that, and the other. You know, it's like it has the gloss of evangelism, but it uses terminology that's not biblical, right? And it... And it's, it's engaging in vocabulary that is entirely worldly and not of God, right? I say these things to warn you. You can look into these things on your own, but that's very troubling to me as a pastor uh, to see that there is a big contingent of people that seek to divide talking to our kids, you know, like and engaging 20,000 youth from our churches on the matter. Like they're trying to, they're trying the to too. accommodate the yeah. transgender business. But Missouri Synod uh, has always had, well, not always, uh, with, uh, yeah. with the Rosa Young uh, in, yeah. uh, in Selma and everything like that. Yeah. Missionaries to the black people. That's right. And I remember very clearly yeah. the, the first black students at Concordia. Yes. And that was in 1950. Yeah. And my husband at the seminary, one of the first black classmates. Yeah. And so we were, our church was reaching out as, and then we had the ministry to the blacks. Yes. And the, or it was called black ministry. Yeah, it? sure. Yeah. It had a, 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 and it was being done reaching to them. Yes. But that was one of the issues in St. Louis when uh, Josh Sullivan and Kerrville. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. He was assigned to a black church, a white man. Hmm. He tried to make them German Lutherans. <laughs> they didn't buy it, so they objected and uh, very loudly and so he resigned, and he was left without a church. And he was doing preaching here and there and staying with his, his wife's family, a place to live. When somebody at Holy Cross Kerrville, one of the elders, found out about it and put his name on the list and they called him. And when he came, we were there. Yeah. And so he... Um, brought in some uh, criticism, a lot of criticism of the Missouri Senate that mm -hmm. everything was bad. I don't know how he did touch on Yeah, that. I don't know about but, all that. But, but that's, uh, that was an issue when he was first issued a call. I think it was a mistake. They should have been more careful in placement. Sure, sure. But it um, wasn't a good fit. Um, I will say this, though. Um, it is, it is, I mean, uh, culture on some level, when it comes to, like, Christianity has a certain culture, right? It takes on different flavors depending on where you are, mm -hmm. of course. 
But I will say this, um, and this is a deeper issue we can get into later. I, I, I bring all this up to say that there are those who want to focus on racial justice yeah. as opposed to simply justice. The Bible doesn't talk about racial justice. Some, some people also want to say that the Bible talks about social justice, but that's not the justice that God talks about. Because when you talk about social justice, you're bringing in, that's weight, that's, that's vocab, that's words that have a lot of baggage attached to them. If you tack on social justice to the things like, you know, take care of the poor, take care of those who can't take care of themselves, and like that, you call that social justice, it's like, you're, you're seeing it through the wrong lens. Yeah. I say all that just to throw that out there so you all be aware of this stuff. So you'll be aware that there are people that are in the Missouri Senate that are not on the up and up. Um, and that you should be wary of, of, of anybody that use language that isn't ex expressly biblical. I mean, I think that's probably a good thing for us to, to keep in mind. And that movement uses specific language too. It yeah. kind of is really exposes itself to its language. Yeah, it does. It does. And, um, and we shouldn't be afraid to call them out. We'll probably get labeled as people who break the Eighth Commandment, but I, so be it, I guess. It's just what's going to have to happen. I guess it's, I, I say it's easy for me that I see through it. Yeah. For other people that can't see through it, it's No, other much. people that can't, and it's really sad that they can't. But it's probably because they're so immersed in the culture that they don't really realize what's, what's wrong about what they're saying. Like, like, and like, which I will say is kind of like this study. Dr. Gieschen talks a lot about universal justification. He harps on it all the time. And that might be because during his time, there was some objections to that teaching, right? Uh, but So we have to understand that there are certain things in our time that we need to fight against or that we need to push back against with the Word of God that says, this is not biblical and this is not this because what you're engaging in is something that is really causing division by making people seen as oppressors and the oppressed mm -hmm. uh, as, as opposed to brothers and sisters in Christ where the, the dividing wall of hostility has been, has, has been destroyed by the body of Christ. Let's focus on that first of all. Uh, but I do think it is very nice to know. And, and you say, this is how things change and this is different everywhere. If you go to a church in like Kenya or Madagascar that's, that we're affiliated with, a Lutheran church, and they'll typically will use the Lutheran service book and it'll be a beautiful service and you'll feel right at home, right? That, and that doesn't mean that, you know, they're trying, we're trying to make them German. It doesn't mean that we're trying to make them be what we want them to be, but we want them to share in our heritage. And our heritage is not something that started in Germany. Uh, it started actually in like North Africa and, and uh, the Near East more than anything. So it's like we're just trying to deliver the faith once for all to the saints. Uh, and we have a way of doing that as Lutherans. And we have a heritage of doing that. Maybe what Pastor Sullivan was, was getting at was that the, the, the Missouri Synod, which I would maybe agree with him if this is his point, the Missouri Synod has kind of de-emphasized our heritage a lot for the sake of unity. Um, we'll see how that plays out. I'm not, I'm not quite sold that that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. Um, I'm really not quite sold that we should just kind of turn a blind eye to, especially things like the youth gathering, which really it's like a big revival. It's not really Lutheran in a lot of senses. And also, 
I've never been to the youth gathering. <laughs> Let me just make that that that, that disclaimer. Uh, but I've seen the things that go on there, and they have at one point in time they have Holy Communion. Now with twenty thousand people, how can you properly exercise pastoral care that the people receiving communion ought to be receiving communion? That's just one of the things that I think is uh, emblematic of the things we need to address as a synod. There are more things that aren't a part of this Bible study that we can talk about some other time, okay? Uh, or we can talk about in private conversation or something like that as well. I just, I throw these things out there to say that we should be on our guard because we're not immune, all right? Uh, because there are those who are in some ways attacking the universal, the universal aspect of God's promise to Abraham for all people. Okay? In very subversive ways you wouldn't think are happening. All right. At this point in the study, <laughs> back to this, at this point in the study, you may ask yourself, why does Paul continue to emphasize this particular point? Is everything okay? She just wants to write it down. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry about that. Sorry. At this point in the study, you may ask yourself, why does Paul continue to emphasize this particular point? Take note, if you misunderstand what the Bible teaches about angels, Old Testament events, or practical wisdom, that would be a shame. But if you misunderstand what the Bible teaches about justification by God's grace through faith in Christ, the results could be damning. The doctrine of justification is the chief doctrine of Holy Scripture. Persist in studying Paul's arguments and see every other teaching of Scripture in light of this chief doctrine. This will enlighten your understanding of the Christian faith and life. Not only does Paul put forth, um, excuse me, not only does Paul put forth Abraham as an example of faith, but he also describes the nature of the faith of Abraham. In spite of his body, which had already been, which had already quote unquote died, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, uh, Abraham trusted God's promise. Abraham's faith clung to the promise even though it defied logic. Paul states in chapter 4, verse 24, that this truth in Genesis is also written for his readers who believe in the same God who defies all logic, the God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Uh, just as Abraham believed that God would bring life out of his own dying body and the dead womb of Sarah, so also we believe that God brought life again into the dead body of Jesus and raised him from his tomb. Just as Abraham believed in God's promise, we have faith in the fulfillment of God's promise. So many Christians understand that Jesus died for the forgiveness of their sins, but what role does the resurrection play in our salvation? You see that in chapter 4, verse 25. What role does the resurrection play in our salvation? The role of justification. Yeah. What is it? Yeah, so what is what does he mean by that when he says in Romans 4, 25? I put, it declares that we mm -hmm. shall also overcome death, being in hell, to live with God in heaven, because Jesus has done that. He's risen from the dead yes. to live in heaven. And he's done that on our behalf, so we can have that as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the, the crucifixion should never be talked about apart from the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And the resurrection cannot be separated from the crucifixion and death. They both go hand in hand. You can't, ha you can't, you can't emphasize only one and not the other. Mm -hmm. 
because they, I mean, like I said, they go hand in hand that Jesus had, had to die <clears throat> for our sins. Uh, but in rising from the dead, it was the proof, the first fruits of those that sleep, as, as Paul says. He is the first fruits of those that sleep to show that death has been conquered. And there is the promise of the resurrection for all who believe as well. It's almost like there's a reaction for a reaction. The action of his death, and then the reaction of that is being risen. Yeah, that the, the author of life cannot stay dead. Mm -hmm. Death cannot defeat the one who created life. Mm -hmm. It's not possible, you know? So it's, it's inevitable that the resurrection would have taken place. And, and we thankfully know that with hindsight and God's word, knowing that that's true. Okay? So yeah, it, it, he, he was raised to life for our justification uh, because it's, it's not that he just stayed dead. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that he's dead. It's like, well, we, we, we remember him and we can go see his tomb and remember all the things he did for us in his death. No. He lives and reigns on high at the right hand of God uh, interceding for us all the time. And Hebrews talks about that too, about how he is our high priest who presents his body as the perfect sacrifice for the sake of those who believe in him. So he continues to work on our behalf, showing forth his body, his, his, his crucified, risen, and ascended body to the Father to say, forgive them for their sins for my sake. There's all kinds of stuff tied up in all this stuff. And you can know I can go on for a long time about that. Um, so yeah, the death and the resurrection of Jesus go hand in hand, for sure. Some people might quibble and say, don't forget the ascension. But yeah, okay. Uh, we can talk about that also as well. All right, any closing thoughts, questions, comments? No? Okay. It's all clear as mud. <laughs> all right words to remember um he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification romans 4 25 prepare for next time uh for the session on the peace peace with god read romans 5 1 through 11 and here let me pass out some of these uh remember how when we first started i gave you a schedule we try and follow obviously that schedule has changed yes it is revised Okay. You don't want to Skype in. <laughs> you can have a Zoom class. I like y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I like y'all, but not that much. I'm sorry. Uh, plus, I don't something extra for that, right? I don't know. I don't know if people at the coffee shop I would be at would be appreciative of me yelling into my computer. It's um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's too much of a production. So you'll see there that, that I even accounted for when, for when we were sick and then when we'll be out. It'll be, it'll be three weeks. It'll be three weeks that we won't have class. So, because uh, we, we'll, we'll get back on that Wednesday. Yeah, so work ahead. We'll do all three sessions when I come back. I'm just at the rate that we go, it'll be a yeah. lock in. It'll be a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a retreat. How about that? We'll have a retreat on Romans for those sessions. All right. Uh, well, thanks for the 
discussion, let's let's go ahead and close with uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.